What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Renegade Animation on the Renegade Pop Culture Podcast Network. My name is Mike. I'll be your host for this evening. Joining me, as always, is Cameron. Howdy, howdy, y'all. And we hope you guys had a wonderful 4th of July. So did we. Well, with this fascinating crop of movies that we'll be discussing, we have America, fuck yeah, the motion picture, (laughs) the Boss Baby family business, and we're doing two Ghibli movies on our Ghibli journey. It's a kind of Twitter meme of how it started versus how's it going with Hayao Miyazaki's Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind and The Wind Rises. So first, let's get the fun one out of the way. Let's talk about America the Motion Picture. Alrighty, Rue. This is the new movie directed by Matt Thompson of Archer fame, written by Dave Callahan, produced by the uh, Lord and Miller duo, along with Adam Reed, Channing Tatum, Will Allegra, Peter Kiernan, Reed Carolyn, Eric Sims, and produced by Floyd County Productions and Free Associations, along with Netflix Animation. So, do you ever want to hear a history report narrated by Jake Peralta from Brooklyn Nine-Nine at his most hammered? Oh, this hell is yeah. What, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is what it would kind of sound like, because it's about how George Washington, who's voiced by Channing Tatum, is best friends with Abe Lincoln. They just happen to be around in the same time period when the Declaration of Independence is being formed. Don't ask how that all makes sense. You're, it doesn't matter. Benedict Arnold, voiced by Andy Samberg, well, pulls up Benedict Arnold and kills everyone who, who forged the Declaration of Independence and then brutally murders Abe Lincoln at a, the- at a theatrical performance. Big shock, I know. It is up to George Washington to get revenge for his best friend and forms a team of rowdy re- rebels to help him on his journey to take down the British. These include Samuel Adams, voiced by Jason Mantzoukas, Thomas Edison, a female Chinese incarnation of the character voiced by Olivia Moon, Paul Revere voiced by Bobby Moynihan, Geronimo voiced by Raul Trujillo, and Blacksmith voiced by Killer Mike. Uh, Let's start with overall thoughts. Mike? This movie is stupid, but I loved it anyway. It's objectively, it in no way earns the five out of five because I do think this movie is very rough around the edges. And I'll, I'll admit that this could have been my speakers like getting fucked up for whatever reason, but some, like some of the sound mixing I thought was kind of off, like, especially during like those big action scenes where like, you know, you had like the heavy metal music blasting and some of the, some of the dialogue either like it either doesn't come in all the way or just sounds like it was recorded in someone's like bedroom or bathroom. But I think just conceptually, I'm kind of a big fan of like taking the piss out of American history and, you know, re- remixing it to tell whatever story you want. My, my parents were asking me about this movie. And when I was describing the plot, they were like, oh, so it's like Hamilton. <laughs> and I said, sure, but raunchier and with more uh, science fiction elements. 
it's basically a raunchy political comedy mixed with a action pulp story. It's very much a grindhouse kind of thing where it's just like, let's just go bonkers with a premise idea like this. And for my overall thoughts, I think it's a bit of a rough mess. Like, I don't think all of it works. But after watching this film three or four times, <laughs> it, it's just kind of grown on you. It's grown on me, and I start to notice all the little jokes and dialogue bits here and there. I think it's a lot smarter than people are giving it credit for, but I perfectly understand this not being anyone's cup of tea. This is a movie that you're either going to love or you're just not going to tolerate at all. And some of it is because it's uneven. I mean, I guess let's get the negatives out of the way. For as funny as the film can be it is also very obnoxious it's very like in your face and it doesn't give you time to really breathe to like really get some of the dialogue jokes and visual gags and sometimes it just wasn't funny and of course due to the whole uh, comedy is subjective thing you may find some of it funny some of it can be very clever some of it can be very dumb and some of it can be of it can be dumb in the wrong way, like in the bad way. What do you think of um, Jason Mensukis's performance? Because I genuinely believe that he's one of these actors that he's very funny when used in the right way. And we've gotten lucky that like Mensukis has popped up in a lot of the shows that we enjoy. But that being said, if used wrong, then he can get very obnoxious. He is very obnoxious, and there's like a point to that, but I do get that he's a little much at points. He can be too much at times. He's like his character from Invincible, Mm. if you just kind of concentrate it into like pure Manzoukas D-bag energy. And it's interesting because I do think there is a very funny element to his character just how obnoxious college frat bro he is and then his character arc throughout the story but I think a lot of it is also because of how the like like Geronimo Edison and Blacksmith like bounce off of him because there's this funny element to the story once you rewatch it a little more like Blacksmith Geronimo and Edison are constantly giving the white characters like the side eye like "Uh uh-huh okay like they don't really trust them even though it's like they're all you know they all want to take down the british but you know there's like a snide cynicism to it that's that's something i can i can really appreciate about these characters and just like the ingenious choice to make uh thomas edison her introduction is kind of brilliant because you know this movie is um, far enough away from the actual Salem witch trials, but the movie already gives like negative zero fucks about, about continuity. It's just funny how like her introduction is like, you know, she's like being burned at the stake for being a witch, but it turns out she's a scientist. Yeah, no, I thought that was pretty clever. And I also like how they're just like for experimenting, for hypothesizing, concluding that hypothesis. She is sentenced to death. (laughs) (laughs) 
like if you listen to the dialogue a little there are plenty of very good jokes but they kind of slip through it because film is very bombastic and how just unrelentingly in your face it is and then it's just like i don't think some of the jokes or commentary works or it's very surface level at points like i think some people got really worried when they saw the uh, part in the trailer where the don't tread on me, bro. Oh yeah. Uh, th- thing comes up. And I think a lot of people should have known that these people weren't going to cater to that group of people. If, if I, if I know anything about Lord and Miller's like political stance, they, they are very much the opposite of, of right wing. They're about as left as most of Hollywood yeah so it's definitely like i don't think it balances everything out but i do really dig the cynicism of the ending where it's all very much like the ideal version of what america should be we all get together we all stand up against hate and to support science and freedom and such and then everyone's like and what about the slaves (laughs) <laughs> and, he has, and he has no answer no answer and then what about giving the native americans their land back or getting the guns back and then really it devolves into what america actually turned into which is very sad but it's a very dark punchline to the overall movie and then there are just like little things like when king richards who's voiced by simon Pegg, is eating on a big table shaped like the u.s all the food is relegated to like different parts of the U.S. of where they originated. Like you see beignets in New- Louisiana because, you know, New Orleans. And then the Great Lakes is just a giant water jug. <laughs> and, and, at one, and at one point he's eating a, um, a double stuffed uh, pizza. Yeah, I love <laughs> that. That whole scene is delightfully gross. But and and then it's just like, I think that I don't know. For my takeaway, it still feels like a movie, even after watching it four times, that wants to be this super dumb, campy, pulpy, like America, heck yeah, story. And just to be this fun action romp, you know, take the Hellboy or the amazing screw on head route of historical accuracy, which, you know, none. (laughs) It's like someone had to tell them like oh no but the internet's going to wonder how all of this works historically and accurately and then it's i think it like clashes a little too much at points yeah i i I see i see what you mean and in my in my quick thoughts i kind of i kind of hypothesize what the smarter version of this movie would be like kind of an adult version of the lego movie where this where they have like a a framing device of Mansukas, uh, Tatum, Sandberg, and like all of the cast just like as as themselves just like hanging out on 4th of July. And then, you know, they're just kind of reminiscing about how how our nation was founded. And it just kind of turns into this. I, I, I thought that might have added like a, uh, you know, one one extra layer to make to make this, you know, to to make it more uh, more substantial but then i was thinking like no there's there's no way to save this movie without without like a complete rewrite 
I mean, I hate saying this because I understand Lord and Miller don't want to take up all the responsibility with making movies. Sometimes they just want to help produce the movie. And I think a lot of the best humor in this movie is from the hands of Lord and Miller. Because then you got the remaining of what you got is Dave Callahan. Well, he made the he wrote the screenplay on The Expendables. Expendables 2 wrote the story for Godzilla 2014, did productions rewrite for Ant-Man. It was written by like Zombieland Double Tap and then this year's Mortal Kombat film, not the cool animated one that's coming out. I don't know, maybe he needs someone to write with him, but I'm not sure. Funny you should say that because some of his other projects he's working on, he wrote the screenplay for... Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. And we were just talking about Lord Miller earlier. He's co-writing the Into the Spider-Verse sequel with them. Yeah, so, and then you look at the America the Motion Picture and it's all him. So, and it's also just because I feel like a lot of the characters don't get fleshed out enough. Like, Geronimo and Blacksmith kind of disappear for a lot of the third act until the big fight sequence at the end, even though they have every justifiable reason to not help these stupid white people. (laughs) But they do it anyway because Deus Ex Machina. Yeah, and even though I love killer, like I love when they're sitting in a uh, strip club and they're just talking about how dumb they are. And I love the lines like, it's like you win, quote unquote, so hard. Like even when you lose, you still think you won. (laughs) And of course- with that's all connected to the vietnam gag and like like there's smart humor here it's very witty and appropriately clashing with the different characters but then maybe it's just i wasn't looking at the character arcs the right way like i think sam adams gets maybe too much of a, a free pass at the end where he's just like hell yeah man i'm no longer racist and i feel like no, you still are, but it, it, I mean, and I think they kind of know that because then Geronimo's like, uh-huh, sure, okay. <laughs> I do think it's kind of cute that, you know, every time they say racist, that it, it, it somehow turns into uh, referring to Paul Revere because his, his thing is all about horses. Yeah, and I'm not sure what, what they really wanted to do with Paul Revere as a character. Like, I love the whole ending like results of him turning into a centaur robocop but like what well i don't know it's his characteristics that kind of confuse me a little yeah i like is he supposed to sound like or like come off like oh i was raised by horses so like what are they implying yeah see when you can't figure out what what they're going for for a character that's what that's when you know that they didn't care about development at all. They pretty much only cared about, pretty much they only cared about the jokes until like the end of the second half when things had to get emotional. And it's a shame because like when um, Blacksmith or, you know, John Henry um, comes back into it and Geronimo comes back, they have some of the best lines and sequences within the movie like the final kill shot to benedict arnold is delivered by blacksmith john henry so 
like it's uneven and then with the whole uh benedict arnold turning into a werewolf okay i mean like i i did i did find that part funny when he's trying to tell abraham lincoln like how he's betraying them and abe lincoln's just like misinterpreting what he actually means (laughs) stop being so accepting for a minute and yet sometimes the humor was a bit much like the whole like blood still spilling out when a was dying it's like okay i get it and it's a very macho film i think the only female character that gets like the most development is uh edison i liked martha dandridge uh who's voiced by judy greer but i don't think she was like the most interesting character she was just the love interest and even though it's like that one very like grown worthy line which i think was meant to be grown worthy it's just like you're george washington the man who invented peanut butter the same and it's like mm. <laughs> i don't know it's like i she wasn't the most interesting to me i i'll i'll give i'll give judy greer this at least she gets to play a slightly more interesting character that isn't that isn't just like the mom or well yeah she's still the love interest but she's like she has a little bit more going for her, not too much. I will. Uh, I think. I think like the best performance is Andy Samberg's Benedict Arnold because you know only only once in a while does like Samberg's natural cadence like come out, but mm-hmm. like for the most part he's he's like playing the character. I think the whole cast is at least having fun with this premise like they're all on board there's no one playing it too seriously there's it like it like for example like the whole sequence when king james finally arrives on uh like in the u.s and he's talking about the rules by the way the rule list is so funny i love like one of them is no (laughs) rom-coms and no research and no diversity yeah no diversity it's like oof and then the whole twisted joke of like the t- the whole uh, the tea party incident of realizing that they're making tea if you dunk an American in it they turn British and then the then the role reversal by the end where if you give a British person beer they turn American but yeah I like King James being like does he not know how to oh no does he not know how to read. No, he does, sir. He's read them, but he's not following them. It's like, yeah, I mean, you know those like those kind of movies that are like really pulpy and fun, and then there's that one person taking it way too seriously. Yeah, who's like not on the same page, or that one person who is like the only one who's like, yeah, I know what kind of mo- movie this is. I'm just doing it because I was paid to. Luckily, that's not the case with with this movie. Everyone, like they 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 know the material they're working with is just silly and ridiculous, so they're just kind of having fun with it. Yeah, and and at some points, I wish they went a little further with it. Like, I don't know. It it they hype up this one sequence of Paul Bunyan fighting the Big Ben clock that turns into a mech. And then Paul Bunyan gets killed very quickly. And then they kind of throw in that joke where they're like, what's a phone or what's a car? It's like, I don't know. 
I feel like they could have polished out exactly what exists and what doesn't because then they have like a helicopter and it's like okay <laughs> i think at the end of the day like the the number one criticism that i have is this this movie is unpolished and that would be okay if again like i said there was there was maybe that ex- that extra layer that kind of justifies the the unpolishedness but as it stands it's it's too it's too coarse to love but it's too fun to hate and i also like uh, mark mothersball did the uh music for this and you know he's done the music for like the crew to new age and such it's fine i don't remember too much from it me neither it was just kind of there to get it done and then i mean let's let's talk about the animation considering that this is from the same people that make archer and it's just a slightly more bigger budgeted archer episode i think it looks good for what it is it's way more expressive it's got a lot more character movements than what archer usually has i hope the animators get unionized there because you know again you gotta respect and give these people their time and time and proper wages and not work them to death. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I, I agree with that. Um, you know, work, workplace environment aside, the, the animation for, for this movie is gen is genuinely great. I love, I love the kind of stylized, kind of steampunk-ish version of America. And I would love, I would love if, if this style was applied to, you know, maybe for, for Thompson's next movie, something a little bit more serious. Um, some, something, something a little less, a little less chaotic because I, I do, I do really like these, these character designs um i i i just i just think like like we kind of talked about earlier thing things move in this movie a little too fast like too um yeah just just too unhinged and it's a shame because i really had a lot of fun with this movie warts and all it just needed a little more polish but I do respect the heck out of this film's existence because films like this make talking about animation a lot more fun when you just get to see something so rough around the edges, but obviously has a lot of creative input put into it. The worst thing that you can be is forgettable. Mm-hmm. Because you come out, you are just a blip, and then no one remembers you the next day. yeah spirit untamed buddy but here yes i remember the flaws but i remember the pros i remember the bad jokes i remember the good jokes i remember the visual gags i don't think i'll ever get over the fact that speed racing is done with horses or just a ton of the visual gags like there are so many great little jokes like i love when george is looking through the photos 
it says character backstory on one side <laughs> of the box. <laughs> I don't I don't think the like the visual humor in this gets enough credit because like so much of what this movie is throwing at you is dialogue heavy that I bet the animators had so much fun just kind of sneaking in some stuff in the background. Thing, things that like you probably wouldn't notice until like the fourth or fifth viewing. And then they do stuff like when uh, Abe Lincoln is calling out the whole like, you're telling me to pay for this shirt and it's expensive. And he's, and instead of actually referencing Lincoln's actual quotes, he's like, something taxation. Yeah, sir, I just work here. <laughs> so, represent something representation. Yeah. Ugh, okay. By the way, did you did you did you like actually see the price of the shirt? It was like five dollars and taxes taxes thirty. Yeah, no, that that was great. And like, there is so much to like about this movie, and what and why you can see people who don't like it and who find it very fun and appealing. Yeah, I've seen the whole spectrum of responses, and I love like the little joke at the very beginning that the whole beginning of the Declaration of Independence was decided on beer pong. And don't worry, Hancock, you can use we rich white people for your Christmas cards. (laughs) (laughs) Which is like, oof. And yeah, warts and all, I liked it. It's, I won't call it a guilty pleasure because I kind of agree with someone on Twitter that's saying like, if you like it, you like it. You don't have to try to justify it. I mean, I could go on about like all, like a lot of little details about this film. But I mean, overall, I enjoyed it warts and all, but I'm not shocked if someone does not like it. I think talking about this movie kind of makes me realize I liked it a little bit more than than my quick thoughts kind of represented. But I, I also think that perhaps had I, had I seen this movie when I was younger, like around the time the Idiocracy was released, I, I would have warmed up to it about to that level. And... If you know me, you know how much I love Idiocracy. Right, right. It's just, it's an interesting movie. And being interesting, whether you fully succeed in your plot or not, well, that's better than not being interesting. So, Which kind of is the perfect transition to our next movie. And one that I can still smell the torches uh, from a mile away. Yeah, we're going to talk about The Boss Baby Family Business, the sequel to 2017's The Boss Baby. Again, I can still smell those uh, those torches and pitchforks. Loosely adapted from a children's book of the same name by uh, Marla Fraze. And like the first film, this was directed by Tom McGrath, best known for the Madagascar trilogy, and stars Alec Baldwin, James Marston, replacing uh, Tobey Maguire, and Amy Sedaris. So... In this movie, the Templeton brothers, Tim and his boss baby little brother, Ted, have become adults and drifted away from each other. But a new boss baby with a cutting edge approach and a can-do attitude is about to bring them together again and inspire a new family business. Let me start because I, I, pro- I, I promised my Facebook audience that I would explain why I love both these movies so much. 
And honestly, it's because it's because I see a lot of McGrath's influences from the animation. He definitely takes a, a very Looney Tunes approach to like to the way he stages like these uh, everything from dream sequences to the backgrounds to just sort of like his timing, his like the speed of the animation. It's just it's just also wonderful. Some of the best like cartoony CGI that I've seen since the first Hotel Transylvania. Yeah, I I was always a little mixed about the original film. Not because like I just hated it. I'm not jumping on a bandwagon for the first film. It was like an interesting movie just because it was like right after Kung Fu Panda 3. And it came out during a not a great year for animation. It was 2017. And that year we got a bunch of mixed results and not a whole lot of good unless you count the always amazing indie scene and foreign animation scene but this was also like the same year we got cars 3 lego batman lego ninjago yeah lego ninjago everyone's favorite overwrought punching bag the emoji movie Mm. but then it was also like the year we got coco Loving Vincent, Mary and the Witch's Flower, Breadwinner in This Corner of the World, The Girl Without Hands, Bird Boy, Window Horses, A Silent Voice. We finally got Studio Ghibli's Ocean Waves and Despicable Me 3, the much better than you would think it is, Ferdinand. But then we also had like super mediocre The Guardian Brothers and Leap and Spark. Ugh, Spark bark a space tail good lord i forgot about that movie and i wonder if its legacy would have been different if the boss baby was not nominated for an oscar honestly that's a good question like would people be as vitriolic towards this first film if the academy instead nominated like a silent voice or Mary and the witch's flower or in this corner of the world instead of this movie like would people be like oh it was just that one comedy dreamworks made like how a lot of dreamworks animated comedies are kind of judged and made from and such they're like oh okay yeah they made that all right and then they move on to the next thing to see what works. I think some of that vitriol from, I definitely think some of that vitriol does come from it becoming the Oscar villain. And I'm trying to think what, what else was nominated that year? Uh, the breadwinner, loving Vincent and Ferdinand. Okay. Yeah. It's, I'm pretty sure that most of its vitriol does just come from it being the Oscar villain. A, it didn't even win. So who cares? And B, Fine, I'm the only person who love who loves this movie to death, but even if it did win, so what? We all kind of generally agree that the Oscars are not the end-all be-all when it comes to declaring what is or isn't a quality animated film. Right, and it was still a pretty good overall lineup, all things considered. Like The Breadwinner, which was my personal favorite, Coco, Loving Vincent, and Ferdinand. Like, they could have gone worse. They could have said let's put spark or the emoji movie i mean i still think it's pretty okay uh smurfs the lost village 2017 had plenty of other worse candidates that they could have chosen 
Exactly. But let's keep the focus more on the sequel because yes. first of all, let's take a minute to talk about DreamWorks sequels in general. Have you noticed a particular philosophy that they have when it comes to sequels, whether or not the movies are good? Something that I can commend them for is they're never just a rehash of the original. Well, outside of like what I felt like were the the third and fourth shrek films were trying to recapture that magic but well yeah those two are exceptions but but no but like to to observe the sequels made by dreamworks yeah they're definitely like let's do something absurd let's do something interesting and let's slide in some ambitious themes and commentary within the story and we definitely saw a lot of that last year with trolls world tour and to new age both of which were huge surprises for me at least i think most people overall enjoyed trolls world tour more than they were thinking not like it was like their favorite movie or anything but they were like man why are they making a sequel to this with the exception of the obvious you know money mm-hmm. and then they watch it and it's like man that was pretty good and then the crew to new age had pretty much everything going against it because it was on and off production multiple times. And and halfway through they lost the original directors. Like it had all like the bad luck. And then it turns into a pretty great sequel. Like one that I would argue is better than the first film by miles because they just went out there. They had fun with it. And you can definitely pick that up with family business While I don't know if I would say it's like one of my favorite sequels from DreamWorks, I still overall enjoyed it. It's not sitting in my top 10, but it's in my top 20 for right now. Yeah, that's fair. Mostly just because like I've watched this film twice and I wanted to give it a second chance because when I was watching it the first time, I was exhausted from a really tough day of work and I might have found its energy to be like the exact opposite of what I needed. It's that kind of thing. But what did you overall think about the sequel before we dive into what we liked and didn't like? Overall, I really loved it. I don't know whether I like it more or less than the original, but there are certain elements are in this movie that I like over the original. Like, for example, I think James Marston really works as the new voice for um, for Tim. I'm still wondering what happened with Tobey Maguire. That's like, a good question. Like, was there a reason why he didn't come back? Was he just too busy? Did he not want to? Was DreamWorks not paying enough? I mean, he's basically... The weird thing about this movie is that even though they convert Tim and Theodore to their kid sizes again. Tim keeps the same adult voice, which was an interesting design choice. Yeah. Like, it, it, I mean, we'll talk about maybe this is a flaw or something. So I wonder why Toby didn't come back. And who knows, maybe he said it and we're just like missing it or something. Like we're looking the other way at, at like a bird or something. Well, <laughs> while he's over here explaining why he's not back. I overall enjoyed this movie the original voice of of timmy from the first movie is miles Bakshi. i'm gonna hazard a guess that the reason he didn't come back for the sequel was because he was going through puberty they must have just thought it was easier to just keep james marston as the voice for the whole time i think that might have been it by the way miles christopher Bakshi is related to the famous adult animator ralph Bakshi. yeah it's 
really surreal to see that. So overall, I enjoyed this movie. Like, I still had a lot of fun with it. I think it had some very charming moments. And I am so happy that DreamWorks is just going all in with their animation for, like, comedy and such. It's a little much, which we'll get into. But in general... While it might not be a great year for DreamWorks, at least film-wise, and we'll have to see how that Troll Hunters film on Netflix turns out. I could think of a... I would rather watch Boss Baby Family Business over a lot of the other films I've seen this year. Having not seen the ones that you're referring to, even I would still agree. Let's start with the positive. One, this animation. Like, the human designs, I can understand liking or hating them, but I love the expression work on the characters they are so interesting to watch and i mean that in a good way not just like oh wow this doesn't translate it all into cgi their cartoony nature leads to a lot of great big expressions and that carries over from the first film like when you see yep. jimbo as an adult he's still wildly like his mouth is big he's loud and then you see like the eccentric Dr. Armstrong voiced by Jeff Goldblum mm. and just how vibrant his facial animation is. Or like uh, when you see uh, Tim's brother, AKA, you know, Theodore boss baby, like when he comes back after hearing that his supposed niece fell off a horse and then you get the horse itself like, that is an expressive little pony. Between Precious and I think it was Maxwell from Tangled, th those two are kind of competing for best animated horse. This movie is so expressive. It's so cartoony. And I love that they dive into it. They should. There's like, I don't know. There's this notion that it's a cartoony movie being cartoony is bad for some reason. Like, it's a cartoon, so it, it can't be cartoony. I don't know. I, I never got that. I, I mean, I can understand, but I never fully got that complaint. Like, oh, how dare a cartoony movie be cartoony. If this is not your cup of tea, it's not your cup of tea. But like, don't get mad at the movie for doing what it set out to do. It's just amusing to me that there was that movement for a while until I think a few people who started that movement were like, okay, that sorry, we were, we were in the wrong. I do like Amy Sedaris as Tina Templeton. She was very funny, very enjoyable addition to the cast and how like more on board with everything like in control than the other two were but if i had to say there was a scene stealer and there are like a few scene stealers i would have to say it's dr armstrong yes i think it, it's his combination of jeff goldblum's very eccentric voice and armstrong's just great animation the body language of of armstrong when he's in his we we are talking spoilers right because yeah we got we kind of have to because i was not expecting the twist with armstrong <laughs> yeah <laughs> The twist is, all right, let's just rip off the Band-Aid. Dr. Doctor Armstrong is a baby. And we're not just being always being a man-child. He's no, literally, he's, literally <laughs> he's a literal baby who's disguised as an adult who wants to start a baby revolution by mind controlling the adult so the babies take over the world. And at first, like when you don't know about that, you're like, what the heck is this movie doing? 
with an adult that wants to start a baby revolution with baby rebels and then the twist happens and it's like oh yeah, it makes this, sense yeah it makes a lot more sense when you finally see it unfold i just love this kind of animation with these characters like they're it's not sony level of squash and stretch but they really expand on that with all the humans in this movie oh yeah like especially like when um tim and his brother drink the or the baby formula to uh turn small and they just really squash and stretch the heck out of their body move proportions <laughs> i'm not gonna say it's realistic but this is probably what it would look like <laughs> probably and even though i'm like not a whole huge fan of some of the other baby characters that we meet like uh nathan pickles and megan glick i love the expressions on them i mean every again this is like one of those movies you could watch for animation classes because you can easily tell what kind of characters they are just by their movements if you like if you just muted it like the no girl like the baby who was like, no, you can extremely tell what kind of character she is just by her rocking back and forth. Her arms are constantly crossed. The extremely sour look on her face. It's, like, it's a fun movie to watch for animation alone because I, I'm sure someone in 1995 is like, why can't we do this? I would love to like to be some sort of time traveler and show this movie to, you know, the people at Pixar and have their jaws just falls to the floor with everything that they accomplish. Like, like I said before, the backgrounds where during the um, Annecy preview for this movie, you know, they cited people like Maurice Noble, who who did background work for, for all of uh, Chuck Jones's cartoons at, at Warner Brothers. You know, all that is just really well done. But we're spending all this time talking about the animation that admittedly does kind of overshadow the, emo like the emotional aspect of the film. And yeah, that is honestly, for me at least, just as strong you know seeing seeing tim and and his brother reconnecting which somehow turns out to be the true mission and not stopping an evil baby scientist from controlling the world through through mobile apps <laughs> i thought that was a little bit of a cop out of like okay really that's what the whole plot was about it was more important that these two get together than, than you know, this guy trying to take over the world. All right. No, it, it has some good emotional themes. Like, just because you're growing up doesn't mean you have to lose your inner child. I mean, I feel like that's how I kind of thought about life in a lot of ways. Like, there was a point where, like, everyone does this even the daughter goes through this where she's like well i can't act like a kid anymore i gotta be a grown-up i gotta be mature and adult and it's like no i mean you 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 will have to take things more seriously and take on more responsibilities but don't lose like the inner fun your inner kid but. yeah it's it, it's it's a lesson that we're all still learning and i do admire the theme of just like that feeling of just like drifting apart as a family and i mean i respect that they wanted to do something like that i don't think it fully works i don't think the emotional core is as strong as the first movie but i i still like that there was an idea to go with but i do want to talk about some of the criticisms i have as much as i love the cartoony animation as much as i love how comedic focused it all is it's too much at points even like after not watching this at midnight on peacock i was very much drained after that whole sequence in the town like when they're trying to get to the school like i loved it but i felt exhausted in the wrong way where i was like "Woo, yeah that was great 
it was like oh whoa okay <laughs> and then there were just like little moments within the school where there's just so much stimulation it's a it's overbearing at times and that's especially true for me at least when when boss baby is inside the daycare center part and he's trapped in that small room with all the other babies he's trapped with like the like the yellow group yeah he's trapped in the yellow group and there's that creepy uh pennywise baby which is like on one hand it's like i don't get why this is here but on the other hand it leads to some of the great jokes that are in the later part of the film that and the kid like the kid who who's obsessed with glue i like glue (laughs) (laughs) and i love those little mafia babies like the ones that have the pez dispenser and such yeah but but again it's like i mean and some of the visual stimulation is great like when Tim is singing with his daughter, that whole scene was at the Annecy preview and it was great. I think that is, if, if I had to pick a single favorite scene, that one might be it. Yeah, that's showing a little bit, little bit of my bias, but still. I am kind of interested to see what, like how that kind of unfolded with the whole spirit stallion of Cimarron clip playing. It's like, oh, kind of want to watch that movie now. But uh, I don't think all the characters are that great. Like new and returning. Carol Templeton, uh, Tim's wife, she's not interesting. I like some of her lines. Like when uh, Tim, when he's a, he's a kid, is being like, whoa, I didn't know you had a hot older sister that knew how to drive. And Tabitha's just like, that's just my mom. And Carol is just like, don't ruin the mood, sweetie. <laughs> and, and such, but she's not really interesting. And I like Ava Longoria, but... Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll agree with that. Like, if they were going to give her that, that, that line of like, shh, don't ruin the moment, that was too much personality in that one line that she didn't really have in the rest of the film. And I love that they combined the imagination parts again. I wish they did a little more. And then, I don't know, did they make sense by the point when you got introduced to the baby ninjas? I don't know. It's like, I think part of the fun was how there were, it was still sort of grounded within the human world and not in Tim's imagination, but then it kind of feels like it bleeds into one another. I I enjoyed from an animation perspective, the baby ninjas and some of the wackier elements, but it's kind of hard. I will concede that the lines between fantasy and reality are a lot more blurred in this movie. But at the same time, like the villain in the first movie was trying to create the ultimate puppy. So I get, I guess you could say neither, neither film had like complete separations between fantasy and reality. And it's like, I like some of the stuff, but I I think they could have balanced it out better. And then, you know, did they really need to bring back Tim's parents? The screwdriver joke was funny but then it's like but the screwdriver joke was already funny when i saw it in mitchell's versus the machines yeah no nobody's gonna top that and i mean i love lisa kudrow and i like jimmy kimmel and i like the little details that they added on to the characters to make them look older but then it's like the dad is just obsessed with selfies and the mom gets nothing it's a touch more uneven than i think like the crew to new age which i thought was just a sequel that flowed very well with with its tone and balancing of comedy and such. I think The Crudes A New Age is a better sequel to its original, but 
I think this movie is only as good as the original. It, it's not better as a whole. There are just little touches that I think put this above. Have, having thought about it a little bit more, still love the movie as, as much as I do. I can see like the more genuine criticisms. No, and, and again, I, I like little details. I like that they bring back the the gang from the first film as adults, like with Jimbo being the mayor and then Stacy being his wife and AKA the one with the brains in the operation. And I like seeing the triplets as cops. I was a little bummed that they didn't show up more because I kind of wanted to see what they were like as adults. But I did like the triplets being like, busted, busted, busted. I mean, uh, I don't know. It's, it's such a mixed experience, even though I still overall enjoyed the movie. And I'd still recommend it if it's, I mean, it should be playing in theaters for a little bit longer, so. It, yeah, it, it'll be in theaters for a while. And either if you don't feel comfortable going to the movies or you just, where you live, there's just no theaters open, you can watch this on Peacock for free. That's what I did. Not because there are no theaters open. I live in Austin. We have plenty of theaters. It was more just I didn't have the time to go to a theater. And because I was hoping my Alamo Draft House would have it near me, but it was one I'd have to take a bus and travel a little across town. And I was just, I'm just going to take the easier option, but I'm sure a lot of this looked amazing on the big screen. I saw this in the, in the Dolby Theater. So certain scenes like the chase sequence or, um, or Tim singing, singing with, uh, with his daughter, all those moments popped a little bit more on the bigger screen. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure that flaming Christmas tree was just like, whoa, like on the big screen. Oh, yeah. Even though it still translates pretty well on like, I still have a pretty big size TV. So I'm, I'm sure it's still looking. Yeah, that's all I have to say about the boss baby family business. So yeah, we move on then to the first half of Miyazaki's How It Started, How's It Going. We start with 1984's Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. Adapted from his own uh, manga series, the story is set after a global war as a seaside kingdom known as the Valley of the Wind remains the last strongholds on Earth, untouched by a poisonous jungle and the powerful insects that guard it. Led by the courageous princess Nausicaa, the people of the valley engage in an epic struggle to restore the bond between humanity and Earth. And this is one of those movies where literally every couple minutes I was watching this, I just kind of exclaimed, this guy is so damn good at this stuff. <laughs> yeah, this is one of those directors and just filmmakers in general who's going to make a strong first impression because even like technically this wasn't his first directorial gig. He did a few things beforehand and then he did the Castle of Cagliostro which is a loop in the third film. But Nausicaa was like his first real big, like I'm going to kick down the doors of the animation industry. This is the first movie, I'd say the first project that he worked on that is like entirely his. Takahata was his producer and he got the amazing Joe Hisaishi, Hisaishi to compose. While this was proto Ghibli, it's like, all of the ingredients are like in this pot. Yeah, this was like, here's everything that originated. Strong female characters, anti-war and environmental messages, grand landscapes and skyscapes, 
Like even before like Makoto Shinkai took like the king of the skyscape crown. It's interesting to talk about this movie because it has such an interesting history and mostly because it also has a very infamous history as an animated film because this was brought over back in 1985. But it was heavily edited and it was called Warriors of the Wind. What happened was that Miyazaki saw what happened to it and he's just like, what? the f bro why did you do this we almost would never have gotten a single miyazaki film in the west after this because of that like well let's call it what it is a hack dub yeah and basically what happened was there had to be a lot of convincing to get like princess mononoke over he was very iron fisted with like okay, I'll give you one more chance. And then the infamous line comes up, no cuts. And when Miramax was unfortunately owned by one of Hollywood's biggest scumbags, Harvey Weinstein, Harvey Weinstein wanted to, well, do what Harvey Weinstein does to anything animated he touches. Edit the heck out of it. Everyone loves this story because it's a great story. Miyazaki sent him a katana (laughs) and a note that said, no cuts. (laughs) I love that. Yeah, it's just like, do not do that. And he had to fight hard to make sure his films weren't edited. They had to be shown as presented. And I'm sure like after the success of Princess Mononoke, that's when we started getting the others over here. And it's just interesting to know that we got Valley of the Wind early on in the early days of US getting anime. But then we almost couldn't have like, and history would have been so interesting to see what happens if we never got these movies. What would happen to animation as a whole? Like, would I, Ghibli films stay just like, oh, this is a thing that everyone in the U.S. animation scene loves and talks about? Yeah, no, I don't think Miyazaki would would be like as he he like he wouldn't be like the household name that he is today if not for the success of Princess Mononoke. Yes, and this is really like i don't want this to sound bad it's very basic miyazaki not that like that's a bad thing and i don't no. mean it oh as no a bad thing. it's very much just like distilled miyazaki of what he likes because you have the strong-willed nausicaa who wants to find a way to not be violent but is constantly pushed into violent situations and then you have her wanting to like have a peaceful relationship dynamic with the bugs because that's like in this world that's all that's left are giant bugs with very few other kinds of animals and humans and then her just trying to find a way for all the people to get together and not fight because we should all be in this together to save the environment and what have you thematically this is pretty pretty much like the proof of concept of what a typical Miyazaki movie is like in one soup. Like Nausicaa technically works better for me at least as a mood piece because there's a lot of times where it's just flying around in the sky, checking out the environment. It's a very quiet movie. Like it's not a silent film. I'm not saying that's what it is. It's just, you know how we talked about last time where we were just like, let the characters breathe. Let them mm-hmm. live in the world. This is exactly the like the originator of that tone, of that style. I love it. <laughs> like I it's such an atmospheric experience of a film. Because you can't do this with a lot of anime where you you mute it and traditional anime 
is very stilted and limited. You really couldn't tell what's going on with like most anime shows made. But with Nausicaa, you could quite literally mute this and you would understand it if you just let the music be in the background. Mm-hmm. And that's, again, to strong character design and character animation. You get who these characters are. And it, also, I mean, granted, it helps that for an English dub cast, they have quite an impressive lineup of actors. You have Nausicaa, who's voiced by Alison Lohman. You have Yupa, voiced by the ever-great Sir Patrick Stewart. Perfect casting. He Patrick Stewart has that voice. That reminds me of like a lot of older animated films from like the 70s and 80s. You, you know what I mean? Like like what I talked yeah. about with Robin Hood and such. Uh, Disney's Robin Hood, to be clear. Like his voice wouldn't be so out of touch during that time period. And then you got Kushana, who's voiced by Uma Thurman. Kuro Toa, who's voiced by Chris Sarandon. Mito, voiced by Edward James Almost, The little fox squirrel thing, voiced by Frank Welker. Ashbell, voiced by the... Ugh. Shia LaBeouf, the Pegite Mayor, voiced by Mark Hamill, Obaba, voiced by Tress McNeil, Gull, voiced by Frank Walker again, and you got Lestelle's mother, who's voiced by Jodie Benson, and then King Jill is voiced by Mark Silverman, and then Princess Lestelle, voiced by Emily Bauer. Like, this is a great cast, and I'm sure it's just like, well, I haven't heard of half of these people. Who's Chris Sarandon? Jack Skellington. (laughs) Yep. Nightmare for Christmas and it's like wait a minute is that true and then I listen to his voice closely and it's like oh that is him you can hear it when he's really dry and sarcastic oh it's yeah. kind of like when Jack Skellington's sarcastic I love like the designs I love Kushana who you find out doesn't really have her whole body there so you're wondering like what else is she hiding and she alludes to the fact that due to her violent actions against the bugs she suffered consequences and it's not a really action focused film there is action it's it's very much it's unglamorous because again this is a uh, anti-war movie but also it's just very much not the focus the focus is more on you know the environmentalism of nausicaa like protecting her people but doing so in a way that is more about preserving her village, living in harmony with the own. Nausicaa, while not my favorite Ghibli protagonist, she's also like, I think she's a little too ideal. Like, she doesn't really have a lot of flaws. I think she has enough flaws to make her interesting, but I wouldn't say she's more interesting than some of the other characters that Miyazaki has created. But she fits within this story because she's she's a play on the chosen one narrative. Oh. Yeah. I mean, what did you think about Nausicaa as a character? She definitely fit the narrative. And I think something that's kind of interesting is this movie came out in 1984. And it might be one of the earliest examples of a a kind of gender swap of a folk legend. You yeah. know how in the beginning they, they described like the man in the blue who comes to, to like to save the world. Right, right. And at the end of the film, it's Nausicaa in her blue dress. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was a nice uh, subversion of expectations. Yeah, yeah. And uh, by the way, Tony J was narrator at the beginning. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, uh, I miss voices like Tony J. It's just, you never quite get that kind of actor or voice anymore. I thought like, this is definitely one of the earlier Ghibli dubs with celebrities in it. And I thought they did a good job. And I feel like I'm on my back beat 
because of Shia LaBeouf, because of the recent allegations and just news stories that popped up about him. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. And when, like, when talking about these Ghibli movies, you kind of have to, when talking about the English cast, you kind of have to consider where we were in pop culture, especially, especially like around 2005, like that, that era of Disney. This was when Shia LaBeouf was, you know, still considered one of one of their biggest stars yeah this was before the transformer movies kind of yep and and it's interesting to hear also hear like mark hamill who would pop back in castle in the sky as the villain i like these actors i like frank welker man like <laughs> give me everything with frank welker i'll watch it and trust mcneil i think mcneil is probably in the most ghibli films that sounds you, about right because i see her name pop up in like almost everything at least like until 2011 yeah and like she's in my neighbor the yamadas and i she's in castle in the sky she she is in only yesterday it's a small okay. it's a smaller role but but she is in that one nice nice now i will say like i do think it's a well-paced movie but i understand that some people are like it's a little slow because a lot of the film is traveling like i i can understand if someone wanted maybe a little more action or just something else but here's a fun little fact of course most people will know this i don't know if you know this but hideki Anno worked on this movie i there's something to say about the next film too yeah and he was one of the animators for it before he would go on and direct Evangelion and become one of the few Japanese animators that Miyazaki's just like, you know what, man? You're cool. I like you. I mean, overall, like for our first major non-franchise-based film project, Nausicaa's a knockout. I anticipate this movie kind of dropping on my list just because I'll be seeing more from both Miyazaki and Takahata, but where it is right now, it's da it's damn good. It's not better than Castle in the Sky, or well, I'll talk about it once we get to the wind. The wind rises, but for Miyazaki's first like, this is mine kind of project, <laughs> this is a really good one. Yeah, it's it's a very good movie. I highly recommend watching it if you're not even if you're like if you're already familiar with him but you haven't seen it yet watch it it's during that time where animated films could very much just take their time a little envelop you into their worlds like i still love the beginning with nausicaa on her glider which i want those gliders made we don't need hover boots or hoverboards i want that glider <laughs> that glider looks like so much fun yeah no, i really love the where she's like the forest area in the beginning. It's just so cool. And everyone gets so entranced when they watch that sequence that I've shown them too. Now watch this movie and then watch um, Star Wars The Force Awakens. And you'll notice more comparisons between Nausicaa and Rey. <laughs> That's interesting. That's very true. But uh, let's move on to what was going to be Miyazaki's last movie. Like, no. I know I said it last time. This is going to be my last movie. I yep. mean, of course, before the one he's making right now, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, this is 2013's The Wind Rises. A lifelong love of flight inspires Japanese aviation engineer Jiro Horikoshi, whose uh, storied career includes the creation of the a6M World War II fighter plane. So as far as I know, this is like the only movie that Miyazaki's directed that's like based on a real person. It's not quite a biopic. It's it's more like just a 
an animated dramatization of the life of the creator of the the a6m yeah no um it's definitely an interesting take it's probably his least fantastical story that he's made even though it still has a lot of those elements of his like fantasy and whimsy and wonder and just like how he would craft the like certain elements it's kind of like his award season drama let's just say that (laughs) um yeah when when in my editorial and the show notes for last week's episode i stressed the point that Animation has no limits. And this movie is kind of the perfect example of this because this is a movie that uses the medium, particularly when Jiro is dreaming and, you know, his mind drifts to wherever he wants to go. But like sequences like that, Miyazaki showing off how much he loves aviation. It just makes this like a very fulfilling watch. It's interesting how he approaches this real life individual because this movie got a lot of heat when it was originally released because they were thinking like, wow, he's justifying and softening up the guy who made the notorious kamikaze planes. And that's not really the case. Because he's not saying like, oh, this is my greatest work. The perspective he takes this from, like with with Jiro, is a man who loved airplanes. Like he loved just looking at them in the sky, looking at them in books, looking at art, looking at like every little detail. It's about a man and his passion. Mm -hmm. And this movie is also very smart to frame like his final creation, the one that gets him his notoriety is not a great thing. He's not happy that his art was used in such a way. The film is very much like happy ending. It's definitely more of a bitter ending to it all. In my little Facebook review of it, I said there's a bitter somber to it. It's beautiful. It's just a great overall experience, but it's bittersweet. Oh, it's a very mature story for Ghibli and Miyazaki because they do that whole thing where it's like, I just want to make a movie that anyone can enjoy. This is the one that feels the most outwardly adult next to only yesterday. Yeah, it's not like kids can't enjoy it this is definitely it's even kind of emphasized in the runtime too like this this is a um it's a drama that happens to be animated it's not an animated movie that happens to be a drama but it still has like its creative moments like when obviously the war is going on and the earth shakes and such it feels like there's a monster shaking the earth below the train yep and it's still very creative. It takes advantage of its animation. And it has some of that Miyazaki whimsy, like how Jiro gets inspired by looking at the rib of a mackerel that he's eating. To be like, oh man, if we can shape the wings to with this kind of element, we would cut down on wind resistance. And there's definitely like a lot more political intrigue. And this, it's kind of like part thriller as, you know, it's obvious that Japan's trying to work on planes to send the to war against the U.S. and British and what have you. And the unrest and uneven nature of them joining with Germany. 
on this match because these people just want to live. They just want to work and war is bad, y'all. I don't know who needs to keep hearing that, but war is bad. <laughs> Gee, I wonder how Miyazaki feels about war. Yeah, no, it's a mystery. <laughs> now, what did you think about the cast? Like, like, what did you think about the characters themselves overall? Because these are mostly adult characters. Like, there's no real kid characters outside of uh, Jiro's sister, like Ka- Kayo, um, who's voiced by Mae Whitman. It's like, do you think, what did you think of them having more adult characters? I think it's appropriate for the story that they were telling. You know, if you're focusing more on Jiro as an adult, working as an engineer, then like you're going to surround him with more adults than than say you know like kids like it's not like my neighbor Totoro or Kiki's Delivery Service where it's like tween to like teenage to older kids and such and I could see a version of the story where it's like this is like the origin of how he got his job as an engineer but that that wouldn't really make for an interesting narrative because the interesting part of his life was yeah like when he actually got to realize his uh you know his dream like the, the film is set up like this basically it starts with him as a kid reading magazines and such and then having dreams with him meeting giovanni battista caproni who's voiced by stanley tucci in this film and and giovanni is like a mentor like in his dreamlike state of mind because he feels like, well, I can't fly because I have imperfect vision. And then of course, Giovanni's just like, listen here, do you know how many planes that I've made I have flown? None, not a single one. I may not know how to fly an airplane, but I designed them. And it inspires him to get into that business. And, you know, Miyazaki's dad did work on planes and making them and such. You could see that in how Jiro is like like his realization of what he wants to do and then it goes into when he starts out young and starts out as a young adult and then going into his adulthood and meeting uh Nahoko Satomi who's voiced by Emily Blunt though if we have to go by it uh Madeline Rose Yen when Nahoko is younger and then dealing with like his cohort Kiro Honjo, voiced by John Krasinski, dealing with his bosses like Kurokawa, voiced by Martin Short. That was just hilarious. He's great. I I love his character animation, especially like when he's like walking with Drive and his hair flaps up like a bird. Um, then you have like Hatori, who's voiced by Mandy Patinkin, which is kind of full circle because Mandy Patinkin was in Castle in the Sky. Oh yeah. He was one of the uh one of the henchmen uh, for the pirates. And then you have uh, Satomi, um, Nahoko's uh, father, voiced by William H. Macy. And then you have Kastrop, who's voiced by Werner Herzog. (laughs) Of all people. Of all people. And I like him. I know some people were kind of like, what the heck is he doing here? But I don't care. I like him. (laughs) And then you have like... um, Mrs. Kurokawa, uh, Kurokawa's wife, of course, voiced by Jennifer Grey. Then you have, again, like Mae Whitman, Ava Bell. And apparently Elijah Woods pops up, small role, but I could, I forgot where he was and I couldn't find him. I couldn't pick him out either. Because it's an, a more adult-centered story, it is mostly talking and 
them crafting the plane. And again, this is what an adult animated film looks like if you don't want America the motion picture. And yeah, I just, I don't know. It's that same mindset I had when we talked about only yesterday where it's just like, okay, so you don't want the hyper-violence and the shock value. Well, this is what the mature animated film looks like. And everybody's like, eh, I don't want that. And it's like, then what do you want? I'm sitting here. I'm tired. It's one o'clock in the morning. What do you want? <laughs> yeah, no, to that point in, in live action, you know, people like, like there is an equal audience for, you know, action movies, thrillers, what have you. But you can also just watch like a hangout movie about a couple of friends drinking beer on the weekend. Um, yeah. So why so why can't we do the same thing with animation? Again, this happens where they do try to make it and then people don't tune into it because it's not The Simpsons or it's not South Park or Family Guy. I don't know. It's hot. It's that thing of like, I wish they would like, we do get those things and then studios really don't commit to it unless it's like oh wow this was a hit so yeah let's do more they need to just let adult stories like this get made because it's a very touching story watching Jiro work on the plane and then get married to Nahoko and just their friendship is and marriage is very endearing even if I think Nahoko is not the most interesting female character from a Miyazaki film like I think she's great I don't know if I needed Emily Blunt to play her. I liked her performance. She gave the character a nice warm presence and every scene that she had with uh, Jiro was very sweet, but you know, out, outside of her tuberculosis, there's not a whole lot to her character, which is well, I, unfortunate. It's very unfortunate because she comes into the story proper near like in the midway point of the second act or I guess third act, depending on how you want to break this film up, either in the three acts or five. And then she just is in the background and it's about like Jiro kind of struggling to make this plane, but also wanting time with Nahoko and then, well, spoilers. Nahako dies. They, they don't say it directly, but... But you know. And it's incredibly touching. One of the few Ghibli scenes that will make me cry when she departs the film, and then at the very end when she tells him to keep living. It, it's like, this is what it looks like to just to grab a very intimate and powerful emotional response from moviegoers. I love the ending to this film. Yeah, the ending is, it's it's not quite the typical Miyazaki ending. Mi Miyazaki and Don Bluth are like, are two directors that are kind of obsessed with, even in their, in like their most darkest stories, the ending is, al is always a happy one. But this is a different kind of hat. This is, it's a bittersweet note, but there's still some optimism to it. Yeah, it, it's a very different take from a lot of Miyazaki's films. And it's, it's like the the exact polar opposite of like what he started out with. And then like he still kept the whimsy throughout most of his career. But this one was just like, this is the last of the whimsy I'm going to have. Movie made for my stories, if that makes sense. Like you start with like this fantastical fantasy world with Castle in the Sky and Nausicaa. Then you get into more quote unquote real fantasy with Kiki's Delivery Service 
and Porco Rosso. Then you dive back into a more serious tone fantasy with Princess Mononoke. Then you get the more family friendly, but still like with an edge fantasy with Spirited Away. And then you get the one that's like, well, we'll have to talk about what you think about Howl's Moving Castle when we get to that point. And then he does like more family friendly fantasy with Ponyo. And then you get this movie and you get why Miyazaki made it because it kind of encapsulates his journey as an animation director and just him as a person yeah like it's gonna be interesting what Miyazaki does with his final film how do you live yeah and if you want to know a little more about the behind the scenes stuff with the wind rises there's a great documentary called the kingdom of dreams and madness which is about studio ghibli but it's mostly about when he's making the wind rises and a little bit of like uh, Isao Takahata's last film, The Tale of Princess Kaguya. It made me re- like love animation production a little more and just to see Miyazaki like when he's just kind of like working on stuff because he's very much an old man. <laughs> like even like back then, like back when he was making stuff like Kiki's Delivery Service, I love this part where he's looking at like this cat And he's like, look how relaxed this cat is. It's pathetic. You have nothing to worry about. And the cat just (laughs) kind of looks at him like, what? (laughs) It's very interesting. And I also love when he's working on it, the documentary of when he's working on his short um, called The Never Ending Man. He does these little things that it's adorable. Like when when he sees these school kids walk by, he'll put these little paper mache goats on his roof. And even though like, yes, we've criticized Miyazaki for just not doing a great job of keeping the studio in a healthy work environment, like in other elements of that. But I just like, he's human. And I think that's what's the most important thing he brings to his films. There's a human element to it. There's a human beauty to it all. Yeah. And there's just going to be something missing in the world once he's gone. I'm curious how, like, how he's going to leave Studio Ghibli once, you know, once he retires. Are, are they going to, are they going to stay alive? Or is this studio kind of the, like, the animation equivalent of, like, a mon pastor. Well, it's uh, well, it's going to be interesting to see what happens because do does Studio Ghibli go and find new talent like from the anime industry? Like, do you get some anime directors who have film ideas to work on movies with them, or do you just like kind of be like what Disney was going to be before they almost shut down their animation property, where it's just going to be more about the Ghibli Museum and such? Or they'll just continue to do like you know co-productions like the Red Turtle. We'll just have to see. But um, let's just finish up with the Wind rises overall like and, th- and this was nominated in a pretty strong year for animated films it was it was nominated alongside frozen um, yeah frozen Ernest and celestine 2013's a weird year man the crudes despicable me Two, Ernest and celestine and the wind rises and frozen <laughs> yep what 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 a year i wouldn't call it a great year but you know it's an interesting year that's more than like 2006 (laughs) yeah or some other years but we'll have to get into that another time uh do you recommend the wind rises 
Absolutely. I would almost go as far as to say that The Wind Rises is the is the best movie from 2013, animated or otherwise. We'll, we'll have to see how you feel when I introduce you to uh, Wolf Children. Good point. Because that's my favorite animated film from 2013, and that's Mamoru Hosoda. That was a strong year for foreign animation, man. You had Ernest and Celestine, A Letter to Momo, The Wind Rises, Wolf Children, Approved for Adoption wrinkles oh it was a beautiful year before i do recommendations because something else came out that we didn't have time to include in, in the main show why don't you go ahead and spin that wheel all right ghibli wheel what are you gonna give us Ooh, this is an interesting one. Oh boy what do we got well we're gonna talk about one of the black sheep of the studio ghibli filmography because it's a very uh, there's a lot of context to this movie that makes it interesting we're going to talk about The Cat Returns. Oh, okay. This is a very interesting one because it's based off of one character that's pretty minor to the overall story of a different Ghibli film, but then they expanded it into its own movie and it doesn't have Miyazaki or Takahata as a director or producer. It's the, the idea was inspired by Miyazaki. It was produced by Toshio Suzuki. It was directed by Hiroyuki Morita. But Miyazaki and Takahata just, I'm not going to say they bailed, but they were just like, you all do this. We're busy with what we're working on. Because I'm sure this was around the same time as Howl's Moving Castle. So, Yeah, that, that kind of adds up. And this is also when we had a very young Anne Hathaway in one of her first film roles, in one of her first voiceover roles. I think it's one of her few that she has. And this is also when we have uh, Carrie Elways, who was a very big name among the Disney English dubs of Ghibli films. Mm -hmm. And then we also have like Peter Boyle, Elliot Gold, uh, Judy Greer, <laughs> which is interesting, Andy Richter, and a young Christian Bell shows up. But of course, if you talk about this movie, you remember the Cat King. Voiced, voiced by Tim by, Curry. Yeah. I, I am excited about, yeah, the, about and, that. And there's there are a few interesting elements to the film also that we'll talk about when we get to there. But yeah, next time we'll talk about The Cat Returns. We'll probably go more into my recommendation at a later date, but just because we didn't have time to talk about this, I, I at least want to mention that we're recording this on the 4th of July, and on the 4th of July, Netflix released a, a series of, of animated music videos um, executive produced by the Obamas called We the People. Now, I didn't get a chance to see all of them, but the two that I'm going to recommend are Checks and Balances, written by Robert and Kristen Lopez and performed by, you know, David Diggs, Lin-Manuel Miranda, and one other person I can't remember off the top of my head but there's that and a song called american citizen and the video was directed by jorge gutierrez yeah it's uh it's about immigration and it's about like people who started somewhere else before becoming americans and it's a great music video that's the first one i watched and it, it's so good it's so good and jorge if we can somehow get you on the show to talk about maya and the three and such We'd love to have you. So as we are recording this, the summer 2021 anime season began. And, you know, I had to say goodbye to my social life and work. 
because there's a lot of anime this season. <laughs> Not 20, as much as 20, last 20 what is it? 25 or 23? Uh 24. Oh, okay. Um I think 24. And they're slowly kind of rolling out through through this month. Not all of them come out like in the same first two weeks and such of July. Some of them don't even come out until like August. So we'll have to see how that unfolds. We'll probably do a mid to late August recording for these episodes for the anime rollout. So we'll wait until then. But in terms of the ones that I've seen right now, and there's like a few I could recommend. There's Peach Boy Riverside, which is very interesting in how its story is told. There's Girlfriend Girlfriend, which has an interesting hook for a harem comedy. There's the Case Study of Anitas, which is another Studio Bones anime, which, you know, I'd always recommend them. And then there's uh, Remain, the new anime by Studio Mappa, which, you know, everything with Mappa is pretty good, but then, you know, with what's going on behind the scenes. We'll talk about that another time. There's the new Ghetto Robo anime, which is pulpy fun, if a bit uneven. But the one I want to talk about and recommend the most is the one that surprised me the most so far. The Duke of Death and His Maid which is about a young man who is cursed at a young age with anything he touches dies. So he lives alone from his family. Like his family was just like, okay, we don't want to deal with this. So we'll put you in a mansion in the forest. And then as he got older and then like, you know, when he's a young man, he gets this maid who was like a childhood friend of his, who was like the daughter of the head maid from his family's mansion, who is very attracted to him. And it's a hard anime to kind of, talk about because it's a little rough around the edges it might not give out the best first impression it's using cgi animation and it's a little clunky here and there but there's this overall mood and how everything is executed that's really charming to me the premise sounds very fascinating it's the it's the diamond in the rough hidden gem of the season and i feel like this is just a first episode impression my opinion might change when we get to the end, when we talk about it in August. But I really enjoyed it. But if you had to pick one or like pick a few to start watching, pick The Duke of Death and His Maid, Remain, and uh, The Case Study of Anitas. Those are the three I'd highly recommend starting first. Because I can understand if Girlfriend Girlfriend might rub a few people the wrong way. It's very understandable. Um, but yeah, that's it for me. All right. Next week, we will probably be talking about the new batch of Looney Tunes cartoons, and we will have an episode devoted to some animation news and trailers because we apparently missed a lot of a lot of trailers, and we got some catching up to do. We got some catching up to do, and there just wasn't a whole lot of animation news to warrant doing an episode about, and we'll just see what comes up. All right, but until then... Uh, Cameron, where can everyone find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Cam's Eye View. I run my own website called camseyeview.biz where I review animated films and TV shows called The Other Side of Animation. I also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash camseyeview. That's where you can find me. And you guys can find me on Twitter at CaptainK42. You can check out all my quick thought reviews on letterbox.com slash coachk42. Find me in all the various Facebook groups just at my name. You can check out Renegade Pop Culture on Facebook and Twitter at Ren Pop Culture. You can also review us on Podchaser. Listen to all of our previous podcasts on Anchor, Spotify, 
Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. And last but not least, check out everything under the sun at renegadepopculture.com. Mean escape, so do we. That'll do it for this installment of Renegade Animation. Thank you guys for joining, and we will catch you guys later. Peace out. Bye.